All right. Welcome back to Real Estate Brainstorming Podcast with Ryan and Tom. Today, we have a great uh, episode for you. Episode number one coming straight to you. What a great week in real estate it was last week. And also, what a great week coming forward this next week as well. Great things, huge things happening in real estate, and we are going to discuss it. So one of the great topics we're going to discuss today is millennials and buying homes. And what are millennials doing when it comes to buying homes and what are they not doing? So let's go ahead and jump in. And Tom, what's going on with millennials in real estate these days? A lot of them, well, a fair share. Uh, the article was on buyer's remorse. And I think because they have more of a carefree, I won't say bohem life, but they buy a house, they get into it and they say, oh my God, what have I done? As opposed to at my age, Oh, man, when you walked into a house, had the keys, it was excitement. It was ecstatic. All the relatives came over. Everyone thought a tremendous accomplishment. I think for a millennial, it is, too, because it just doesn't make much sense to rent unless it's a holding pattern. And the millennials, uh, the house is too big. The house is too small. Didn't have enough money to buy the house I want. Uh, maybe I should cut down on expenses. Uh, to me, it would seem that a lot of these things should have been maybe handled emotionally, physically, whatever, before they ever went out and started looking. And I won't place uh, any blame or responsibility on a realtor, but part of that to me would be qualifying about what you want to do and, and how you're going to do it. And for some millennials, it was like, how, how did I get swept into this? Uh, what did I do? Did I act too hastily? And one of the biggest things I was surprised about millennials, oh, the maintenance. And I sometimes wonder if that doesn't come from Wall Street. <laughs> uh, oh, Ryan, it's a nightmare. You get a house, there's toilets, there's faucets. Well, there is when you live in a condo and you rent. It's just that the landlord ups the rent, factors in maintenance, and maybe gets a plumber. And I kept thinking, why didn't the author, the journalist who wrote this article, bring up home warranty? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I saw that um, when I was reading the article as well. And it said, uh, the number one financial regret among Americans is that they wish they had an emergency savings uh, from yeah. Hamrick, the writer. You know, you look around the house and it's just a series of things waiting to break. And it's like, <laughs> Well, obviously, when you move into a home, things can go wrong. And then, like you said, a home warranty. Like when you, when you buy a home, some of these people are buying homes without home warranties or not getting inspections. Like, what are these people even thinking? Well, first of all, looking out, being an advocate for a buyer, and we want this show to be that way. We've told folks that for sellers and buyers, it's just not all real estate lingo or, or helps realtors and not the public is uh buyers should have an inspection and if that inspection shows i remember one time i sold a gentleman uh, a house i think he had 94 items on it which was ridiculous he had a striker plate with a crack okay and i said you're going to alienate him they're just going to bail on this but yeah the water heater dripping are rusty at the spigot there's things like that you do look for well, in the bargaining, even in a frenzied market, seller's market, you do have some power to try to get them to fix it because once that becomes known to the buy, the sellers and the agent, the agents, if it's a material fact, must disclose it. Can't hide it, okay? So that might work or you bargain in it or if you couldn't get the sellers to pay for home warranty, get one. And that'll eliminate, it's like, why would you buy a brand new car and no warranty? Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that uh, I help coaching my clients on as well, and uh, as far as the home inspections go, even if the, like, let's say, for example, the property was under contract, the current buyer falls out of contract for whatever reason, and they had an inspection done. Well, that inspection was done by a professional inspector. And Correct. a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just go ahead and reuse that inspection. I like for $500 to like, if you're buying a hundred thousand dollar house, a million dollar house for anywhere between 300 to 500, that's what, you know, the prices that we have here in California for inspection go, I would do my own inspection. 
In fact, I've been talking to a lot of realtors and I feel the same way. If someone buys a brand new home, especially a brand new home in a brand new neighborhood and all of oh, that, especially yeah. with the market the way it is, how fast they're trying to produce these sure. homes, you still get your own personal inspector. Because I know a lot of these home builders will be like, oh, I will have my inspector inspect the home for you. Totally great. Thank you. But I'm bringing my own inspector and I'm going to do my own inspections. And like you said, as a realtor, you also have to be smart and have good affiliate programs with your home, with your, you know, have good connections with your, your uh, inspectors, because sometimes you can get an inspector that will just absolutely blow a deal. Like you said, what inspector goes through a home and literally checks off 92 items that need to be inspected? Like that is a little above and beyond. And you, like yeah. you said, that's just absolutely killing the deal. Deal. No, I agree. But let me let me give you a horror story. It happened to yours truly, me, when I was uh, into uh, fixing and flipping homes. Uh, it was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I lived in Denver, and there were a lot of good deals in Cheyenne. I bought a brick home. It was a bank foreclosure. Mom had died. The son had gone in, lived in it, didn't make payments, tried to wire, do a bunch of things, and just left it with wires hanging out and whatever. But to me, I love that. It's opportunity. Uh, worst case, I say I got to rewire the whole house. Okay. And, and I bought it accordingly. And uh, one thing I did not do, it was an older house, maybe 80 years old, but brick, solid house. I did have an inspection and the inspector did what I call a toilet flush, turn the shower on the tub and whatever, and shut them off pretty quickly is uh, we fixed up the house. I had a partner. We sold it right away. And it was a husband and wife with three teenagers. I get a call three or four days later. She's frantic. Sewage is backing up in the tub, whatever. Oh, no. And oh my goodness, they were on a sewer. Yeah. So we, we, we said, well, obviously don't use any facilities. And we had a guy come out and a couple of guys, and they dug a hole. They went straight down where it exited the house, the main line, and nothing. So what do we do? We can't figure it out. So we had to hire a guy with a camera. And he put the camera in the sewer pipe and started running it up the sewer pipe, like a rotor router, but it's a camera. And he goes out about 50 feet. And sure enough, there's roots. It had so grown in to block it. It also had broken the sewer pipes. And when the guy did a toilet flush, then went upstairs and turned the shower on, it gave enough time for it to drain. But when the people bought it, he had two kids taking showers, mom doing a load of wash, mom doing a load of dishes, it couldn't handle it. And so it just ran right back up into the nearest thing, the tub. So where <laughs> does it have to be fixed to break? It's in the neighbor's yard under his slab in his garage. No. So I'm looking at what can I do? And so I look at it as I asked the neighbor, if I gave you sufficient money, could I jackhammer up your garage floor, fix it, and then I'll put a new floor in and give you some cash? And he said, yeah, I might entertain that. So I went to the city and they said, you're out of your mind. No, I'm always thinking, how can I solve this cheaper? Ryan, I had to go a block and a half, $23,000 up the street, down the street, to reconnect to where the sewer line was available. Oh we God. made about 35 grand on this thing. We were clucking about it, having champagne. Ended up, we netted about 10, five grand each for three months of hard work. So my point, if you ever get a holder, older home, especially if it hasn't been used in a while, have the sewer checked with a camera. No, you don't wanna spend the $300 or whatever it may be in your city. Uh, but it's the best money you'll ever spend if something like this comes up. Yeah. And you know what? So here's what's really cool too. So um, the home that I currently live in, we had a little issue with plumbing because plumbing does come up, right? So we're like, well, let's go ahead and call the plumber out. And the plumber came out, checked it out. So you spoke of roots growing through the pipes. So that's what, yeah. that was the issue we had and they're about to fix it. And uh, luckily we have, so the coolest thing ever, so he came out with his camera, went through, inspected everything and found the roots. And the roots are just preventing the flow of going through the pipe properly, right? Correct. Well, 
they have, this guy has this new machine that he just bought. And it was so cool because it saved us tons of money. He has this new machine that like is a rotor router, but it's, a, it's a, it's, I don't even know how it's got a nozzle on the end of it, but it shoots such high pressure water that it's like a drill. So he sent wow. this thing down and literally we were like, well, while you're here, why don't you just do all of the pipes? And so he ended up going through and flushing our whole system. Right. And, you know, like we didn't even realize that there was any like slowage backups or anything like that. But now it is like night and day. It's like, it's really cool. What, and that was like hardly anything, couple hundred bucks. This guy came That's in it. and really, really took our pipes to the next level. Innovation, like innovation. Yeah. But in the case I had, I just want the public uh, to understand this. The pipe had cracked because of the roots and dropped. Oh no. Yeah, you follow? So yeah. say it's six inches, it dropped four inches. Jeez. So it was going right to the ground. So, so it's running to the wall and like literally flowing right back. Yes. So this this guy's machine, I would believe in this case, wouldn't cut it. No, that wouldn't have happened. Okay. He did talk to me about if if we had a major problem, there's this thing now that they have, it's called a sleeve that they can put in the pipe. They shoot it down the old pipe and then it expands to the outside diameter. And like they can, so like if you have two pipes that are offset like this, yeah. they can actually move them to where they sit together again. Wow. And then yeah. they, they sleeve them together. It's really cool. Well, it was um, a few years ago I did this, but I, I, I'm just telling you folks, uh, get I want to go into a quick question too of, of uh, something that happened recently. Continuing saga, my friend who bought a condominium that was way overpriced. Oh yeah, how's that going? Yeah, well, uh, she still hadn't expected whatever, but this to me is just uh, mind-boggling. She has four five hundred thousand dollars in the bank cash. Yeah, they told her the mortgage she got pre-approved. They had loaned two fifty. The two fifty was predicated on her debt to income ratio. Okay. Yeah. Now she goes back. It looks like she's going to put it together. They're going to come down a bit, whatever, do some of the things the inspection said she had to do. But now the mortgage company is vacillating. They're saying your debt to income ratio isn't what where it should be. You didn't give us all the facts. And she said, what do you mean? And she's squeaky clean. 850 FICO. She said, you have a small storage unit down here in LA where she's buying. And you have a bigger storage unit in Oakland where you're moving from because she sold her condominium. Ergo, the 500,000 cash she has. Yep. And if we factor in that storage unit, those two storage units, you're not within the debt to income ratio we require. From a storage unit? Yes. So temporary, so she can close and move in. So now they're trying to hit her with higher interest and she's putting four hundred and fifty thousand dollars down on a 675 condo oh my gosh That's but i just want people to know this this is a tip this isn't a mortgage broker the mortgage banker yeah but how they think sometimes it just boggles my imagination well you know the scariest part of every deal is when it gets to the underwriter you know oh. what i mean like they'll find anything and everything and they're like oh well this is coming up so hey speaking of uh interest rates and mortgages and stuff, going back to the millennials thing, uh, it said that 13% of home buyers listed high mortgage payments as another concern, and 12% of home buyers were unhappy with mortgage costs. Like, right now, how are these people upset about I, yeah, what, what are they thinking? Oh what are they thinking? Because I always say this, twin sisters, Jill and Jane, one says, forget it. I'm not going to be obligated and rents a condo and her sister buys one in the same building. They're identical. And so are the twins. And the one who rents last because maybe her sister had to replace the carpet or something happened. The washing machine quit. See, there you go. But five years later, the sister renting her rent's been bumped twice. And Jane, who has a mortgage, is the same mortgage payment. And she's making money on her property, right? It's appreciating and the mortgage is declining. Yeah. Now let's go 10 years, 15, 20. Who's laughing now? So the millennials got to understand when you go in and maybe tighten your belt a bit, 
but as your income goes up and whatever, you're going to be so happy. And then also that article, I don't think it brought it up, correct me if I'm wrong, did not say millennials were complaining that the mortgage rates were too costly, even after factoring in interest deductions from their gross income. Correct. And it did. Yeah. And you also mentioned that there, the home prices rose by more than 50% in 10 of the markets. Like, so their home price, their home went appreciation. Correct. They also would have accumulated um, equity by paying it down and they got their offsetting interest deductions right. and on and on, you know, like it's just, um, this is, it, the, I, the I interest think that, rates I don't right know. are going to be untouchable. Yeah, I don't know where these people come from, but my Jane and Jill or Bob and Ben, whatever, twins, years later, it becomes uh, so obvious. And 30 years later, when Bob burns his mortgage and Ben's rent was 800, it's now 2,800. Who's laughing now? Yeah. Also, you, you, it did mention too, we haven't even talked about, is that the millennials, a lot of them were being uh, too hasty, right? So when it comes to their mortgage, they bank with Wells Fargo. They just went to Wells Fargo. They banked with right. Chase. They just went to Chase. They didn't actually seek out a mortgage broker or a mortgage banker like to, to do some comparative research on getting them the best rate as well. And that's one thing that buyers need to really keep in mind that the banks may show you this rate at the bank, but they're not shopping around to five, six other banks to see if they can get no. a better rate. Also, uh, sometimes that millennial doesn't understand that they may have 20% down, but they could maybe FHA and leave the money in the bank. Okay. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people are like, oh, FHA, I'm so scared of FHA because of PMI, right? So yeah. uh, that is like mortgage, in. In yeah. mortgage insurance is a, it's a great thing to have. It's not that scary. You're still saving money. Right, right. And so at least the options should be presented to them. And most mortgage people are not going to do that. They got one product to sell that week, the flavor of the week, and that's what they want to get rid of, especially if it's Wells Fargo, B of A. Who are they going to show them to? Millennials should be ecstatic. I'm old enough to remember when people were paying with 800 FICOs, 14% on a first mortgage. And you know what that did to the value of the home? There's two wings to an airplane. It tipped the value of the homes. Now I lived in upstate New York, and the same thing. I paid, <laughs> I paid eighty-five thousand for an old farmhouse. The taxes were five thousand a year. That's what suppressed the value of the house. That taxes were so high. But when I figured out the eighty-five grand plus the five and, and the smoke cleared, it was still a good deal. Yeah. Hey, and you so know, for the, millennials this... now, I mean. Wow, I would be more apt to caution them of being led into a bidding war or something. Okay. And I might actually say to a millennial, depending on what city they're in, you might want to rent for a year and let the market play out and see. I don't think it's going to be a whole lot higher. I could be wrong. And on this show, there'll be times I may have a serving of crow. Okay. Yeah, no doubt. And, and sure. I think you'd be the same way, but I'll own up to it. Yeah. It's that they should at least weigh the choices. Yeah, they should at least weigh the choices. So, so here are the choices. Let's go over them, right? So when you're buying a home, your choices are very first thing. Like I know we, you and I have talked about the home buying, you know, the, the seven Process. steps of home buying. Number one is finding a realtor, which, you know, if you ever need help, you can definitely reach out to us. Um, and then also... The next step is finding a mortgage broker. And I, I highly recommend searching multiple mortgage brokers, multiple banks. It does take a little bit of time, but just do it. And you could even do that in reverse. You might even find your loan before you find your agent. Uh, and also when you, are, when you are finding your agent, whatever state you're in, if you know somebody who is a realtor in any state, reach out to them as well and feel okay to ask them questions. Uh, you know, for us, if you're with us, we can even help you get the proper referral in your in your specific city and help you find a really good realtor. That way you're not going into it blind. And again, you can reach out to us uh, for that as well. Well, I think someone is going to look for a house, say a millennial, anybody. You, you obviously know what your income is. Okay. I don't care if you're self-employed. 
which can be a whole nother kettle of fish. You make 150,000 a year, you own a t-shirt shop and you show a $12,000 net income because of creative deductions. Yeah. Well, that's great, but that's gonna bite you in the backside when you go to try to get a loan. So let's just assume you're a good old vanilla W-2 employee and you have a 760 FICO or something. You can get pre-approved, there, learn the mathematical formulas. God, there's on almost Google, there's a million calculators, what have you, of what do I, staying within the parameters of a debt to income ratio, what do I qualify for? Okay, yeah. uh, 2,200 a month. And at a given rate, how much is that? 450,000, I'm just throwing a figure out. Okay, 450,000, I have 3.5% down FHA. I have another 200 grand in the bank, then maybe you go conventional, put 20% down, or look at a house that's 600 grand. It isn't a mystery. You should not be in a Mercedes car lot thinking you can buy one when you really should be over at the Toyota lot looking at Corollas or something. Yeah, I, I, don't, know. I don't mean that demeaning to either car. I'm saying that's just not realistic. Right. And you know, simple rule of your realtor, you, you don't want to run into that. Oh, you got to settle those people down. I learned something when I was a Smith Barney stockbroker, Ryan. Okay, so if we find you that ideal house, when are you ready to move? And you'd be amazed. Well, when grandma dies, she's 71 years old, good health. Well, okay. <laughs> or you might say, I'm ready to move now. Great, Ryan. How many liquid and available dollars do you have? Yeah. And not when grandma dies. Not if lotto comes across, not if, 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 it's what do you have saved? Yeah, what how can we, we help have? you today? Because there yeah, are ways. Yeah. Exactly. If we want to pull that trigger, yeah. what have you. Okay. Now, for, for buyers, we'll dwell on this for a moment because I think it, it bears uh, talking about escalation clause. There's two schools of thought. One is if Ryan says, okay, 500 is the asking price, I'll go at $2,000 increments in escalation, okay, with a cap of 510. Meaning if it comes in under 510, you should get it because you'll be escalating to the winning, winning price. But then there's some that say, ah, but Ryan's revealed what he would pay 510 when they're asking five. You see what I'm saying? Yep. He's showing his cards. Well, how else are you gonna do it? And I have a daughter who just ran in that situation. They're offer wasn't rejected it expired wow and her husband my daughter my son-in-law was under the impression that it's still valid they could come back and say we'll take it and it was it was uh they wanted the weekend to think about how this came up we'll really think about it meant are we going to get any more offers i said you might have had it rewritten or amended with an escalation clause yeah because how would you feel if Monday, well, you offered five, and of course they waited for the weekend and someone uh, bid uh, 501,000, you lost it. Yeah, you know what's interesting about the escalation clause as well? I was speaking with Brad about this, uh, one of our other partners in Double Your Income Coaching, and Brad had mentioned that he was getting clients that were worried about the escalation clause that the seller's agent was just saying, hey, here's the new price and um, so on. He put in his escalation clause, I need to see proof of the highest bid that we're going against as well. So absolute uh, sign, sign, sign proof. yeah, the sign actual accepted offer. And then our escalation would go up. And then there's some agents out there that be like, oh my gosh, you know, well, we can't do that. This market, blah, blah, blah. Well, if your sellers, if you respect your sellers, you're going to try and do that. Cause yes, the seller's agent may try, or if you respect your buyers, the seller's agent may try to run up the price just to expire the full amount of that. Uh, escalation clause but if you put in there i want to see the signed document that shows the offer i'm competing against then we will bump it up that would that's a great move inside of the escalation clause. Ab ab absolutely i'll tell you another one you don't want to make an offer any longer than necessary you want some gentle pressure seller's market so it's got to be a nudge buyer's market it can be brutal but you want it to expire. Like my daughter wrote an offer and it expired the following day at 5 p.m. is on a Friday. They said, we want the weekend to think about it. Uh, the seller would have liked to see them say, oh, well, it's good until next Wednesday. 
Okay, right. but what they would do with that is they'd run around and wave that offer under the noses of other people. That's correct. Okay? Yeah, they Try do. to create a bidding war. And I've seen that happen. And I've actually seen, Ryan, where the agent did not present the offer. They were waiting for a higher offer to come in or an offer that buttered their bread on both sides. They got the whole deal. Yeah, I, you know, that's one thing. I have been have. asking that actually for all of my deals that I'm doing, especially in this market. I asked the, so when we're going through the process of setting the appointment, because now in California specifically and probably other states, to set an appointment, you have to show proof of funds, you have to show pre qualified letter, and you know, that way they're actually a real buyer. But also, um, when it comes to speaking with that agent, I'm asking them, uh, Wait, what were we just talking about? Well, we we're talking about not having it expire. Oh, yeah, yeah. I right. always ask them, hey, are, do you, are you representing any buyers on this deal as well? And that's a huge ask because if they are yes. asked, if they're representing a buyer, then they're already having bias. Even though I, I know some states it's actually illegal to do a double-ended deal, but here you can represent both sides. And um, with that, you do compete against that sometimes. So you have to write a competing offer. And I like to ask, hey, are you representing any buyers? Because then I know what extra ammunition do I have to bring to the table? That happened to me. And I knew it was a real cutthroat agent and maybe had done some shady things. And I knew my offer wasn't being presented. And uh, I knew the agent was trying to do a double dip, uh, an offer from one of her clients, which was for less money. So she hadn't even shown the sellers my offer. Yeah. And I lost it. I didn't get it. And so what I did is I called the listing agent and said, I just wanted to let you know, because you wouldn't deliver it, that I delivered a copy of my offer to the sellers personally. Yeah. And they could see where it was more than what you sold it for. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. Because then they have a problem there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now that she's going to have to explain why she sold it for less money because she got the full 6%. Yep. Now, the other thing, going back to the survey with the millennials that they were talking about, the survey also found that 14% of millennials said that their house was too big. <laughs> I'm confused, Ryan. Were you blindfolded when you went in? I don't know. This one, this one was, this one actually made me laugh out loud, like yes, LOL in too. real life. Me too. I was like, well, shoot, if your house is too big, what do you have? One extra bedroom too, too, too many? Yeah. Then house hack that thing. Let your friend move in, especially millennials right there. Everyone's still hanging out with friend groups and all of that these days. Let your friend rent their room from you or, right. or find someone that you could like, that you could be, that, that is trustworthy to rent out that room and you're right. house hacking. So you're living in your house. They're helping pay your mortgage. I mean, that goes back to the old school, like buy a duplex you live in one and rent the other yep. but nowadays yep. if you're home you can buy a larger house and you can yep. literally build a second adu additional dwelling unit on your property if you and let if someone you, move in if your city will allow it you can do an airbnb yeah that's also really fun. and there's some down here that can be killer you can you know airbnb what, one you know room too it doesn't have to be the whole house no not not at all you know what the marriott's renting rooms down here now 1400 a night no way. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Airbnb, but you know what happened? Folks, be careful. Caveat emptor. Down in here in Key West, they created what they call the transient law. Okay. And if it's uh, under 28 days, you have to have a license. So that would just about preempt anything that's an Airbnb. Most people go to Airbnb for a weekend, a week maybe, certainly not long term. Well, okay, I'll just buy the house and get a transient license. It takes five years. Oh, my gosh. They don't want to give anymore. So I try to tell people here, I just shudder when I hear, yeah, I bought this house. Realtor told me it'd be a perfect for Airbnb, and they do not have a transient license in place. Yeah. You follow? So that started really uh, eating it up. But, but the pandemic has uh, really... Uh, I guess pumped up the Airbnb uh, business. What happened? Yeah, it really with millennials. So a lot of them are used to it. Want a roommate? This, that, whatever. A lot of ways they might slice it to work it. And that was why I talked the other day about if someone had a rental in your city 
and they had a child going uh, out of state and they could sell that exchange into a rental in that city where the child's going to college and let the child live there then exchange back. It's kind of the same thing in a way that that child might actually have roommates and that helps cover the mortgage or give spending money for the child. So yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. It really is. So in reality, going back through the article, millennials feel like they've made a couple of mistakes, but I think that, um, you know, I'm in the millennial category because it says anyone 25 to 40, you know, with my age group, I'm in there. And going forward, uh, I think that they're going to realize that their decision wasn't the wrong decision. Maybe they're having those emotional decisions and feelings right now, right? In the future when uh, this all comes back, because I know a lot of people are talking about, oh, the market's going to crash and this, that, and the other. And it may or may not, you know, markets go up and down. But long term, strategically, the house, you know, five, 10 years down the road will be back at this price again anyway. So if you're happy living yeah. in an area and you're happy living, you know, uh, or you're not happy at the moment, wait a couple of years and see what happens. I think you're going to realize you made the right choice. Well, for those who think the house is too small, I agree. Get a home, enjoy the tax write-offs, uh, the appreciation, the, the declining of the mortgage, kind of a double whammy. And in three or four or five years, maybe you and your income maybe has gone up, you've been promoted, whatever, and get another house. Sell yours and buy another one. That's that leapfrog. You do it all the time, like a hermit crab. It dumps one shell and gets a bigger one, and it grows. Same thing. If it's too small, and I'm being sincere, uh, when you look at its bones, maybe you figure in a year or two, you'll have the money, you add a bathroom. You redo the kitchen, knock a wall out. There's a lot of things you might do to overcome that type of a, of a, a handicap, you might say. The thing is to get the show on the road. Now, with millennials, I believe in the article too, was fascinating. A lot of them don't want the responsibility of a car. So if they're in a dense enough city, uh, New York City would work well, okay? Uh, I've lived there, is uh, what do you need a car for? Call Uber. Now, LA, Los Angeles, as you know, that's a little more difficult. Yeah, depending on what kind of LA yeah. living situation you're in, like we live downtown next to Staples Center. I sold my car while we were living there because I didn't need it. Uh, right. but, but if you are trying to get to Hollywood more frequently or yeah. Studio City or something, even- Or you get an appointment in the San Fernando Valley. What do right. you do? You're going to need a car there. And then, oh, by the way, that article also mentioned, so they are using uh, Uber and Lyft quite a bit, but they're also not buying cars because they're using Turo, that, that rental car uh, program, where instead of uh, going to Hertz, rent a car or whatever, where you have to have a credit card and all these things, you can go to Turo, use your bank card, or your debit card to rent a car for the day for two days or whatever as well, like Turo, get around and these types of apps as well. Okay, well, is, is that where the cars park somewhere or do you go to a facility? Yeah, so they have two different ways of doing it with Turo specifically. You can have a delivery where they literally, the person you're renting from will charge you a delivery free, they'll bring it to you. Uh, there's also certain locations that you can park a Turo car in like airports have uh, if you're a turtle okay. renter, you can leave it there and the, the airport just charges you a little bit of a fee. And there's all kinds of different with get around. You literally just park it wherever you scan it. You get in the car, you drive it for the day, you get out and leave it wherever you are. That's what they have here in Miami. They use smart cars. Yeah. And you see one park there, whatever. And then someone would get it for the day, go to shopping, maybe do some chores and just drop it off and not have to worry. We are in a state of flux. It is going to change. And that includes the technology like EXP being cloudless, no brick and mortar. I was re reading an article that about 60 plus percent of a brick and mortar real estate's office overhead is the brick and mortar office. 60% so, of it? Yeah, uh -huh, to float oh it and maintain it, yeah. That's extreme. I mean, and yeah. so... Like that wasn't even a part of the factor of EXP when I came into it. Um, Cause when I was working, when I started, when I got my license just a year ago, we were in the, like the thick of it with the pandemic. Right. You know? So it wasn't like I had a brick and mortar office to go to. Everything I did was via zoom already. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't one of the factors coming in. And it's so, it's so interesting to talk to some of the recruits that we're bringing in from other brokers and stuff. 
um, some of the people I'm interviewing, they just don't want to leave because they need a physical office to go to. And we do have physical offices, but uh, it's kind of strange that, that I guess they want the camaraderie to go talk to yeah, their friends. And stuff I, like I think, well, you know, the telemarketing world, whether it's insurance or who knows what, uh, has gone through a huge metamorphosis. And there still are hardcore people who want to go and sit at that cubicle and, and maybe ch ch chat a little bit with uh, neighbors or associates next to them. And there are those who that remote set them free. Yeah. You know, I can see that because some people do like the rah, rah, rah team right. spirit. I just closed the deal. High five, that type of right. thing. But then other people are self self-dependent and things like that. So speaking of that, so the talking about the brokerages and things of that, since you've been a realtor for like basically the whole cycle of real estate, how it started. And um, uh, we were talking about that a little bit. So can, can we go back to that kind of the life cycle of being a realtor, how that, how well, that was into how Fred, it is? Fred Flintstone was one of my clients. <laughs> <laughs> I sold him a two bedroom cave. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to say you were there when real estate started, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, you know, contrary to what most realtors believe, I don't think that the nail in the car it was one of the nails in the coffin for realtors was uh mls and nar selling out <clears throat> a direct uh pipeline to like uh zillow i think that was a big nail in the coffin i think the first one came when uh real estate brokers started deciding i'm not paying the hefty rent to be on the boardwalk yeah now if you go to resort areas whether it's winter for skiing or beach resorts you'll still see a fair amount of them. They, they either been there a long time or they're going to suck it up and pay it. It's huge, okay? I remember when I started, it was the phone book type MLS. Uh, John and Mary would live in an area. It could be track, maybe not, track homes. And maybe they had talked about a bigger house or this or that or an older couple on the downside. The point is they're thinking of maybe doing a change. And they're driving down the street, going to the grocery store or whatever, and they see Ryan sign on a lawn uh, with gold medal realty. Well, they really have very few choices back then. One was to knock on the door and hope Ryan will show them the property and probably call his agent uh, to represent them as well. This was way before dual agency. Or more typically, they would, uh, while they were getting their uh, shoes repaired or going to uh, whatever, a, a satellite store next to an anchor tenant, they would drop into a real estate office and ask questions. And how effective was it? I, I remember one company I worked for, I had uh, on a good day, 10 ups, 10 people walked in asking, now occasionally, what do you think my house is worth or why are taxes too high? But if you do that on a regular basis, you're getting 30 to 50 walk-ins for you a week. That's potent. That's incredible. And I remember one walk-in coming in and he got divorced and he was in a pickle. And I listed four properties that day. He had single family rentals. I listed four of them that one day from that. So to me, the proof was in the pudding. But what was funny too back then, the phone book was a listing of all the homes in that area with black and white photos that you couldn't even tell what it was. Yeah. I mean, seriously, the photos were so bad. My point here is, and what you and I had talked about, is I would engage the people at the very beginning of their thought process of maybe moving. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's got a deadline, they were promoted, whatever, and they got to go from LA to Chicago. I'm talking about in the same general area. And you would uh, bond, you would make an appointment, you would get an idea of their budget, mortgage, what have you, and then you'd put them in the car, load them up, and take them out to look. No lockboxes in those days. You had to call the people who had listed the home. And this could go on, if you're lucky, maybe only a week. You show them a dozen homes because you tried to qualify what they want, but it's you making a decision because they couldn't tell from the black photograph, I guarantee you, what this property looked like, okay? You might get them to say, well, we like one, or you narrowed it down to what they don't like, and then the next five or six you show, bingo. You, know, you got something they want to make an offer on, okay? Today, as you know, 
a young couple sits down, they're going to say, we're going to go maybe to the Newport Beach area. They're going to go, I don't care where they live in the country, they're going to go on the internet and scope out houses. And they know with their budget, they're not going to probably be looking at $5 million houses if they're looking for a million. It's just not, they might have a little out of curiosity, but I think you would agree. If they want to pay five and they don't find any, they're probably going to say, oh, boy, is there a house that cheap? And they may find out from a realtor, no, there's not, nothing you want to live in. They've already done a lot of the preliminary decision-making and looking and thought process. And they finally see one. And today with drone shots and 3D videos that go through the house and programs where I can arrow, you know the programs, I can arrow it and look to the left at the neighbors, look to the right, is there a tattoo part or whatever that might blow the thing, okay? I can get a rough idea. Now I'm ready. Okay. Now I call probably, and that's what Zillow has its strength, your face on the Zillow ad. Okay. Your agent up there. All right. Although Zillow rotates them and you may think there's six, there may be 36 because they rotate them. Okay. The point is they, the agent comes in much later in the process. And now to get to a very ticklish point. If the agent comes in so much later in the process, does he or she deserve the commission they're getting, have traditionally gotten? Maybe, maybe not. But I certainly can see where that person might have a stronger argument that you don't than the old days, which I grew up in uh, and experienced to where I came in at the very beginning. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that too? Um... You never know, you, you know, you never know because you have the client where, like you said, they come to you from an online lead, right? So I have, uh, in fact, my very first deal um, that I, I was getting my own leads because I have a lead generation system. We all have uh, our, our lead generation system on our team, Tom, with double year income coaching. And, uh, but the, I was getting Facebook leads and a client literally came in through a Facebook lead. I called them. Hey, how's it going? Just saw that you were interested in buying a home. They said, yes, I want a home. I've already worked with two agents. They didn't know what they were doing. I need someone who really knows what they're doing. Can you help me? I was like, absolutely. Wow. They said, okay. here's the size home I want. Here's the price I want. I sent them three. Um, they, they picked, or I sent them five. They picked three. I was able to book two. The other one never responded. We went to those two. They didn't like the first one. The second house, the wife came to me while we were midway through the presentation. She was write the offer. I'm ready to buy the house. Okay. Wow. Now that is, that happens. It does happen all the time. So is the commission worth the amount? Well, in reality, there's a lot of work that goes on the back end of that deal too. So the, sure. the whole closing process, it's, it's more than people think, but then also like I was talking about on our last podcast, I had a client um, that was, I've been working with since December. That's a six month client. Is that, okay. was that worth the commission? And that commission was a 2% commission uh, but I'm, there's no way that I'm going to be like, oh, I don't want to show you that house because the commission's too low. So right. it's, it's a double-edged sword. And uh, I know that a lot of people think that, oh, you guys sit there, do nothing and get paid. But that is the farthest thing from the truth. But this right. iBuyer system is starting to tap, you know, break into that. Well, it's like you go to a doctor and he says, uh, Ryan, you got the stomachache because you're wearing your belt too tight. And you're going, you're going to charge me 75 bucks for that. It's for what he knows you don't know. Yeah. How long and did it take him to learn that knowledge? 20, 30, 40 the years. The cost for schooling, the cost of the office, the support yeah. group, whatever. So uh, I, I think it's, it's what is at arm's length. Yeah. But uh, in one of those articles we've read, uh, it said, I think it's down to about 494 now, 4.94. Yeah, it the says here, it says, it's also worth noting that there has been some downward pressure on commissions, though not a massive amount. According to March report from ranking and analytics firm Real Trends, the average national commissions rate in the U.S. fell this year between 4.9 and 4.94 percent. And that's hey, my memory's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then that is down from 5.40 right. in 2012. And I think if I were to ask you, 
where do you think it's going to go? I'm not going to pick out one exception. You got someone who's a grinder or someone who was a, a lackadaisical could care less. I think the pressure will be for it to go down. I completely agree. In fact, I have only seen one listing that I have shown a client where it's the full 6%. In, right. in my entire year so far here in California, yeah. it's obviously a very competitive market, but you're like every deal that I've seen has been two and a half. And like I said, just that last one was two, 2.0. Um, so, but that does also come on to, there is comp competition in the market, but that's also like the listing agent. Some of these people are undercutting and not, like just, just to get the listing. And so sellers as well need to be wary of that too, because, you know, in, in a market like this, you put on MLS, it sells, but in a market in five, six, 10 months from now, where you hire that 2% agent, 4% agent, where they don't know how to market, they don't know how to put a ho open house together, they don't know how to do yep. any of that. And then all of a sudden your house is sitting there for, you know, 90 days and you're like, what the heck did I, well, you, you got your 2% agent, you know? Here's an interesting thought. You go on a listing presentation and they like you, they like what you say, they say, but here, here's our thoughts. You say 5% commission. Uh, we, we just don't want to pay that, uh, whatever. I, I know you would say, uh, well, what do you think is fair? And you would talk about it and maybe you'd walk, maybe you wouldn't, but it's negotiable. We all know that because Correct. you get your hand slapped if you say it's not all uh, firms charge the same. There are multiple lawsuits against NARA now about the commission, but it isn't on the listing side. The nuance is it's on the buyer's side. The buyer has no way to say when submitting an offer that its agent, instead of taking two and a half percent, 50 percent on a hypothetical five percent listing, that its agent is only going to take two. The agent would look at them like they're nuts. Yeah. They have no bargaining power whatsoever. Okay. And that's what NAR did. And there are people who think that's monopolistic. That well, I had a client. I, I will tell you this. I had a client. I've never had a client like this. I ended up having to fire the client because it was a little out of craziness. <laughs> but so she called me. She's like, I want to go look at this house. Like, excellent. Let's go look at it. And she goes, um, I was like, it's this much. She goes, oh, well, I need it for this price. So why don't you tell them that you'll give your commissions to them to get it down to my price? And I was like, um, uh, I don't think that that's going to work out for us because I'm not willing to do that. I'm not going to do all of this work to help you buy a home for nothing. You know what I mean? So I just told her, I said, hey, that's a great idea. And there's probably an agent out there that will do that for you. I think that uh, it would be better off if you went and found that person. Right. But I'll tell you, conversely, and as a totally different scenario, and I would have done what you did. I had a deal once where it came down to, gosh, I think it was $5,000. And it really got into a spitting contest. You know, It wasn't really, uh, they couldn't pay or they couldn't give. And I said, look, let's just cut to the chase. Let's split 5,000 four ways. The listing agent eats twelve fifty. I eat twelve fifty. The buyer comes up twelve fifty, and the seller drops twelve fifty. And we all looked at each other and said, "Okay, yeah, no." And I agree with that. And yeah. and what's cool about that though is you were already in the negotiation. It wasn't your client saying, "Hey, you know, do all this work for me, and then just give him that money." So that was like it was just it was an absurd thing. I can't even believe she asked me to do that. But um, yeah, but there's, there's people out there, you know, that do that. Like she thought oh, she yeah. was a realtor or maybe she was a realtor in the past and she knew how it worked or something, but it was okay. really strange. But, um, but yeah, so the, the market, I agree. Commissions yeah. coming down a little bit. I think that they should maintain. Um, I don't, I don't think it should be going down because it is a lot of work and there are a lot of fees and all that stuff that go along with being a realtor that no one even really knows about. So um, it's it's a double-edged sword again. Yeah. So. Well, I think the investment in technology in real estate uh, that's necessary. Uh, most people don't realize that when a realtor starts, unless he or she has a killer sphere of influence, your your dad's uh, John Travolta or Brad Pitt, whatever. Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he has a barbecue, and you got all heavy hitters coming to it whatever. Let's get down to reality. Your dad works at UPS or he could be a dentist, but you don't see that is it takes you six months 
And if you looked at it in a bell curve, I would tell a young realtor coming in, you got to know, A, what's your personal budget per month? What's your net? What's your uh, business net? Uh, fees, whatever, ongoing costs, da, da, da. Add the two together and that's your total net. That's what you need. So let's say it's four grand. Six months, you need at least $24,000. Sitting yeah. in there. Every yeah. month you can pay your bills and hopefully by then you've closed something or you're really close. If you're not, probably you don't want to stay in the business. Yeah. And but they don't. They, 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 uh, most brokers won't tell them the truth, won't tell them the blunt truth. And they come in very naive and they think the fact they got 80, 10 or 90 or whatever is going to make the difference. No, the difference is how hard you work and do you get leads and can you get a listing or can you close a sale? Absolutely. And that's why I think if you're going to become a realtor, find a mentor first, right? So find someone who is a realtor that you could see yourself working with or join a coaching team like Double Your Income Coaching as we have for our team members. If anyone, if you're a brand new agent listening to this podcast right now, you can join our team. You can reach out to us for sure. Do that realestatebrainstorming.com. You can go to our website and uh, get in touch with Tom and I. But that is important. You need to have a mentor that can help you get leads. And also, I would also uh, warn you, don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to go work for someone who's just going to feed me leads because you can get into a situation where if they're feeding you leads, they're taking 50% of your income for the rest of your career. Uh, you might have a very high split. The leads may be just their, their leftover leads that are not even qualified. So um, do your due diligence when it comes in. And uh, make sure, like I said, you find a good mentor. All of my years in, in real estate, and that's peripheral, knowing people with uh, competing companies in real estate. I've never had someone say, God, I can't believe it, Ryan. They gave me another five leads today. I can't handle them all. I've never, never heard that. Nope. You're it's not going to hear that. My broker said, my broker said, my broker said, and he abandoned me. And I'm being blunt. That so you better get used to it's kind of a uh, self-perpetuating or self-generating business. Now you want to know how to look for leads smartly, and again, our library or you and I, we can talk about ways to do that. Uh, that might be different. They're not going to be running into maybe everyone else, but uh, that's the name of the game. Without leads, you are dead in your tracks. Absolutely. And you can work your sphere of influence and you can do all that and you can generate leads from that as well. But again, a mentor will show you how to do that. Um, so anyway, hey, another great show, Tom. I really appreciate yep. your time today. What a freaking awesome podcast uh, episode official number one, we are going to call it. So millennials and, and they're buying, uh, they're buying feelings. So we're excited to, uh, if you're listening and you're a millennial, your feelings may be hurt now, but uh, in a couple of years from now, you're going to be thanking yourself for sure. Absolutely. And again, like you said, they can reach us uh, for information. It's gratis. We're trying to help them. If they want to work with us, that's terrific. Uh, so once you one more time, do me a favor, or maybe you'll post it, uh, how they can get a hold of this brainstorming. Absolutely. Thing. So you're going to go to www.realestatebrainstorming.com. And that will give you a landing page that you can simply fill out and then you can get in touch with myself and Tom.